You've probably had a dream once or twice in your life where you were filled with anxiety because it was a dream about some type of situation where you were completely unprepared. This used to happen often for me whenever I was in school, where I would have a dream where there was like this major test, and I didn't know about the test until right before class, and I realized that I didn't know anything about this test, and now I have to take it. Or I, I remember I would have dreams sometimes of, um, you know, I, I've mentioned before that I grew up playing soccer and, and that, like, I would have this dream where uh, it's time to play the game, but I don't have cleats. And I have to, like, go home to go get the cleats, but the game's about to start and I'm going to be late for the game, I'm going to miss it. And, you, like, moments like that, you know, or, or the dream where you have to, like, give a, a presentation or a speech in front of a crowd and you don't know what you're going to talk about because you didn't know you are giving that speech and then suddenly they're calling your name on stage. Or maybe you're a dancer or you're in... Um, you're in uh, the play and you forgot your lines or you forgot your choreography and, and suddenly you just realize in the dream that you're unprepared and there's all this anxiety. And, and, and we hate to be unprepared for moments of great importance, hence why we put so much effort in the preparation and the planning and the strategy and the, and the teamwork and whatever we can to prepare for big moments in our life. But you know, what's interesting is that oftentimes in terms of the spiritual life, we don't really, well, typically, we don't tend to think in terms of preparedness. Instead, we tend to think in terms of simply good and evil. A lot of times when we think about the heaven or the end of time or our, our own salvation, we, we don't really think of terms of pre- being prepared. We usually think in terms of Well, did I commit the most awful list of sins? Am I good or am I evil? In fact, um, you know, many of you know that we had our confirmations uh, last week. We had our, um, uh, it was was great, a great week, and uh, we even have a few this morning. So confirmation is on our mind. Well, part of the process um, in preparation, you know, we had different talks and times for the students to ask questions and to uh, discuss among themselves. Well, one of the many questions that came up there's this question once about, how do I know if I am good or evil? What if I'm not good? Which was a very profound question to ask and, and wanted to, to reverence with, with great significance. Because in some sense, like, we're all good. Like, we're all fundamentally good. Because God created us and God made us in his image and likeness. The books of Genesis uh, tells us that. And we're also good because of God's love for us, and and he loved us so much that he became one of us and died for us. But at the same time, to some sense, we're all kind of bad insofar as we sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. None of us are exempt from that. But God proves his love for us, as St. Paul says, in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Showing his love for us. So to some degree, like we're all kind of good and kind of bad. Like it's all kind of a big mix. And and what's really interesting is that today's gospel does not make the distinction between good and bad. Rather, Jesus tells this parable about at the end of time, the distinction is going to be made between the prepared and the unprepared. That's a little bit more frightening, isn't it? Let me give you some context for today's gospel. It's always good to put it into context, especially today because it's a parable about a wedding feast, and the ancient Jewish customs of wedding feasts was 
quite different than the way we do it today. So the way that they would do it, you had the bride and the groom would exchange vows, and that would then begin a time of betrothal, the betrothal period. And the betrothal period could last as long as up to even a year. And, and throughout that year, the bride and the groom would live in separate homes because there's this joyful anticipation for the day that they would soon eventually move in together and the two would become one. But you see, that's interesting, isn't it? Like even after the vows, there was a time of separation and anticipation for the ultimate uh, union. And during that betrothal period, they, they would wait for the great time, the great moment, where there would be this uh, procession, where the, the bridegroom would, would go to the home of the bride and go get her, and together they would process back to the home of the groom, and there would be this great wedding feast. And the wedding feast would not just last a couple of hours like they do for us. The wedding feast would be even as long as a whole week long. It would be this, this huge celebration. But, but at the beginning of that wedding feast, there's that procession from the bride's home to her new home with the groom. And, and everyone that was part of the wedding feast would join that procession. And it was typical for the virgins to have their lamps um, to join that procession. And then they would all go into the wedding feast together. So Jesus kind of sets that up. That's the, the Jewish custom for, the, for the, the weddings. And he sets up this parable speaking about the end of time in terms of a wedding banquet. And he says that there are these ten virgins who five were wise, five were foolish. All of them had lamps. All of them had a flame in their lamps. All of them were virgins. So all of them seemed to be good people, but five were wise in that they brought oil, extra oil, just in case it takes a while for the, the, broom, the groom to show up. And it does. He's long delayed, it says, and he doesn't even get there until midnight, the middle of the night, and the foolish virgins, their lamps, their fire, their flame is starting to dwindle. So they ask for some oil, some extra oil, and surprisingly enough, the five wise virgins say, no, they don't share. And then, even worse, they, the, the five foolish ones go off to buy some more, uh, some more oil. I'm not sure how that happens in the middle of the night, but that's what happens. And then they come back, and oddly enough, the bridegroom locks the doors and says, I do not know you. Kind of a frightening passage. Wow. Okay, so what does this mean? What, is, what does this work for us? Well, St. Augustine interprets it this way. He says that the bridegroom is Jesus, and the bride is the church, and this wedding banquet is the great wedding banquet of the Lamb, the end of time, whenever Christ comes again. The betrothal period was the resurrection, was, was the time when, when Jesus inaugurated a new kingdom. But, but now we are, we are joyfully anticipating the second coming of Christ. And so we are like the virgins waiting for the procession, that final coming of Jesus Christ. All of us have the fire within us, like the lamps. All of us who have been baptized have that fire within, but... St. Augustine says that the oil that keeps the flame alive, the oil that the wise virgins have, that the foolish virgins don't have, that oil, he says, is good works. 
Or you could say acts of charity. Or you could say works of mercy. That's the oil that keeps the flame alive. Which I find to be very interesting here because hopefully most of us, if not all of us in this uh, church right now, have encountered the Lord at some point in our life and hopefully multiple times in our life. And, and hopefully all of us have some level of a relationship with him and that gives us a fire within. There's a fire that's burning. It's the fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire of the Holy Trinity is, is alive within us. We've talked about this before. But brothers and sisters, I believe so often our fire dwindles. And very often when it does, we don't know what to do. We just start to have these moments of self-doubt. We start to question whether or not we ever had a fire at all. We start to wonder, how did I even get in this slump? And is there any hope to get out of it? What am I supposed to do to get back inspired in my faith and connect it with God and on track? And that can be very tough. But according to this parable, to be prepared to have extra oil to keep the flame lit... The secret is charity. The secret is acts of charity, good works, works of mercy, which makes sense because, you know, recently, a couple weeks ago, we had a whole homily and, and, and gospel reading on the greatest commandment, love of God and neighbor. That's what this is, but tangibly expressed. Like if our faith is simply just about a good experience, and then we just continue to live our life as if nothing's changed, the fire's going to dwindle. It's as if we've, we've like, we shut off the oxygen and we're just like smothering it and it just, the flame just gets smaller and smaller. But if we add oil to our lamp, the oil of charity, the oil of good works, you come alive in your faith and you know this. This has happened before. Think about in your life, think about whenever you we're at a time in your life where you served others and you were on a mission to serve others and you did it with the joy of the Lord, think about how alive you felt in that moment. That's probably when your faith was the strongest, whenever you were giving of yourself for the glory of God. And then think about other times in your life whenever you find yourself in great doubt or sorrow or darkness, discouragement. And there might be all kinds of reasons for that, you know, but, but, but the reality is that chances are there might also be a level of you turning in on yourself and not allowing the oil of good works to inflame the fire within. So that's my question for you today. Is your fire starting to dwindle? Have you noticed that the fire within your soul is starting to get smothered, that it's dwindling to just a tiny little flame? Do you feel like you're not as on fire as you used to be? And if so, perhaps the Lord is inviting you to a greater act of charity, to a greater tangibly expressed works of, of serving and loving your neighbor. One of our values here at St. Leo is that we show mercy. We show mercy by by through the works of mercy, by being attentive to our neighbor who is in need. Sometimes that neighbor is a person sitting right next to you today in church. Sometimes that neighbor is somebody in your own family, or sometimes that neighbor is a stranger that you've never met before. But either way, the Lord calls us to 
to outpour the love that he gives. That we receive his love and we share that with tangible acts of service, of love, building up our neighbor and the kingdom of God in the process. And, and the great byproduct of our pouring forth is that the fire within our souls come alive. So perhaps today, as we continue with Mass, I just want to invite you to think about who in your life right now, at this season, perhaps this week, who in your life is God asking you to love in a new way, in a tangible way? Who is he asking you to go out of your way to serve this week? Who is he asking you to be inconvenienced by? So that as you go out of your own plan and priorities for the week, for the sake of loving someone else, perhaps you will experience Jesus Christ. You will meet the face of Christ through this act of charity. Through this work of mercy, perhaps your flame within you may come alive to a new spirit. So today, let's pray for that person, whoever that person might be in your life. We offer up uh, this mass for that person. And perhaps, too, we can make a resolution so that by this time next week, we went out of our way to serve that person, all for God's glory. And watch the fire within you come alive. Amen.